right, guys, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 23. Acts 23. We've got a considerable group of people that are suffering hard for Jesus this week as they are down on the Gulf Coast in Orange Beach. Somebody's got to do it, right? And so uh, fall break uh, for a lot, many of the area schools coming up this week. And so maybe some of you are going to get a, a day or two or maybe a, an entire week of rest. And so always thankful for fall break. And how about this weather? I mean, this has been fantastic to finally get a little taste of, of some fall weather. I hope that it, it stays this way um, and uh, that we, we get to continue the, the fall season, which is my favorite time of the year. Uh, so what I wanted to do this this morning is, uh, as I told you last week, we're kind of on the on the way out of the book of Acts, and we've been just tracking through this book over a year and a half now, and it's just been such a uh, an edifying series uh, as we've preached through one of the greatest books in the Bible, and we look at how the birth of the New Testament church was started, and and Jesus giving his disciples this this great commission that continues on to this very day, and we cannot emphasize that. Enough that the very same call and commission that the Lord gave his disciples nearly 2,000 years ago still indeed applies to you and me today. And that's why we're here. That's the only reason Christ Church exists today is so that we would know Christ and make him known. So that we would continue to fulfill and carry out the great commission as his people. That's the only reason that you even have life today as a believer. That's our purpose. And, and may we never get away from that purpose. But what I wanted to share with you this morning is that I want you to see the connection between what we believe and then how we live. Because what we believe truly does matter. And we're going to see something here in Acts chapter 23 that I thought was, was very interesting. And it, and it really led me in, a, in an entirely different direction when we began to think about the different belief systems that existed during the days of Jesus and, and right here in the days of the early New Testament church and the days of Paul and I think it would help bring some, some light maybe to the scriptures when you're reading through your Bibles and you, and you come upon words like the Sadducees. And you're like, man, who are these guys? Who are the Pharisees? And, and you begin to see these names and these groups, these religious groups of people who were very, male, very well in place during the days of Jesus and the days of Paul. And I wanted to take some time this morning to really help you see what these different groups believed and then why it is different to what we believe as the, as the true church, the true followers of Jesus Christ, and what it is that really sets us apart from any other religious group, from any other uh, really denomination. If you want to get into denominationalism, we'll talk a little bit about that today. But what I wanted to communicate to you this morning is what we believe matters. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump off in Acts chapter 23 this morning. Now to set the context... We know that there was a plot of the Jews to trap Paul. And so Paul is taking some um, four uh, Jewish men who had the Nazarite vow, and he had taken them into the temple to sponsor them as they were fulfilling their Nazarite vow. And the Jews accused Paul of bringing an unclean Gentile into the temple, which was forbidden according to the law of Moses. And they used this to create mass chaos and mass confusion they go to attack Paul. They were going to kill him right there on the spot. The Roman guards intervene. They get Paul out of harm's way. And then Paul was like, hey, I speak uh, Greek and can I address the crowd? And, and Paul begins to address the crowd and it doesn't get any better from that. And so the Roman guards get him back safely into the barracks. And they're like, listen, we need to get to the bottom of why these people hate you so much. And so we're going to bring you before your accusers and we're going to give you an opportunity to give a defense of why you're being attacked, why you're being condemned. And we want to give your accusers an opportunity to state their case so that maybe we can figure out what's really going on here. And so the, the next uh, scene that we pick up in here in Acts chapter 23 is Paul is taken by the Roman tribune, who was the, the leader of the Roman uh, legion there in Jerusalem. And he took him before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men of different religious, you know, belief systems and backgrounds. And that's where you're going to see what happens here in just a minute is why it's, it's very interesting what Paul does to, to divide uh, the, the Sanhedrin. But he's taken before the Sanhedrin to give an account and basically give a defense of who he is and what's going on and why they're trying to kill him. Okay, and that's where uh, Acts chapter 23 
picks up. And as I said last week, you really, from Acts 21 all the way to the end of the book of Acts, I mean, you see Paul repeatedly sharing testimony, repeatedly sharing his conversion story about how he was an enemy of the church, how he was on the march to kill the followers of Jesus Christ, and how he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus how his life was turned upside down and he was forever changed and then appointed as apostle to the Gentiles. And that was his, that was his testimony. That was his defense. And I challenged you last week, you, you need to know your testimony. You need to write it down. You need to rehearse your testimony. You need to make sure that you, that you have a testimony and how our testimony is so powerful in our day-to-day lives and how we can be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a testimony. And God gave it to you to use it. And we see that's what Paul is doing here. But pick up on what Paul does here in Acts 23 this morning. And you're going to see what I'm talking about here in just a moment. I'm going to pick up in verse 6 of Acts 23. Okay, so Ananias is the high priest. He has Paul, they, they, he tells one of his guards to, to slap or strike Paul in the mouth. So he basically punched him in the face. You know, and, and Paul kind of rebukes him, and then he doesn't realize who he's talking to, and he backs up a little bit. But then you look at verse 6, look at what it says. Acts 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee. Don't, don't miss that. Paul does not say, I was a Pharisee. He says what? I am a Pharisee. Wow, I thought Pharisees were the bad guys, right? Look at what he says. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So he, he immediately brings up the most contentious issue that separated the, the Sadducees from the Pharisees. He brings up the resurrection of the dead. Paul knows exactly what he's doing, okay? So he brings up the resurrection of the dead, and it says, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune... Afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away by force and bring him into the barracks. I mean, this thing got ugly. It's about like a Southern Baptist business meeting, right? I mean, they break out into a knockdown, drag out fight right there in the middle of the Sanhedrin, okay? And they about tear Paul apart. But Paul knew exactly what he was doing here. Now, here's what's interesting about what you need to understand Paul himself very likely was once part of the Sanhedrin. It's very likely that Paul had many colleagues and peers on this very council that he knew intimately. Uh, I was reading some of the uh, writings from some of the earlier Jewish traditions, and it says that by this time, uh, one of the uh, sons of Gamaliel was on the council. Now, if you know anything about Gamaliel, Paul was a, a disciple of who? Gamaliel. He studied under, he was, he was recognized as one of the greatest teachers and rabbis in Israel. And Paul studied under Gamaliel, and it says that his son at this point was on this council. So it's very likely that Paul and the son of Gamaliel grew up and studied together. It's also very likely that there were some Pharisees on the council that may have been in Paul's favor. But we don't understand that in context if we don't understand what's really going on behind the scenes when it comes to these different groups and these different denominations and parties in the religious culture of first century Israel. Now, a funny little story. When, when we were able to take our trip to Israel, it's been, I guess, what, two or three weeks ago now, and we had a, a guide by the name of Hanny, and he was an Arab Christian, and, and uh, we, you know, as, he, as we're touring around, you know, he's sharing and teaching, and, you know, he would get up from time to time and share different things when we're passing this place or, you know, take mention or take note of this place. And, and at one point along the trip, we're riding in the bus, and Hanny stands up and he says, he starts mentioning something about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, you know, I'm prepared to teach you about the different sects of, of, of Israel. And my wife, Abby's eyes got that big around. She's like, did he just say sex? 
And, and because of his Arabic accent, you know, it, it was a little bit confusing what he was talking about. And I said, no, I don't think he was talking about he was going to be teaching us about the sex of the Jewish people. He's going to be talking to us about the sects, S-E-C-T-S, right? So it was easy to misunderstand that. And that's exactly what Hanny was talking about. There were these different religious groups. I'll just, I'm going to use that word from now on today. Groups of people, okay? In Israel at the time of Jesus and at the time of Paul, and it's very important that we understand who these groups were and what they believed because what you believe matters. What you believe matters, okay? Now, to understand the differences of these Pharisees and Sadducees, it's better to understand them within Judaism. Again, it's just like, it's just like Christians today, right? You can drive down the street and you're going to pass four or five different churches of different denominations. You're going to pass Assemblies of God, and you're going to pass Methodist churches, and you're going to pass Southern Baptist churches, and you're going to pass Presbyterian churches, and, and all kind of different churches and different denominations. And obviously here at Christ Church, we don't really know who we are because we're non-denominational, right? No, no, no. We actually do know who we are. We're going to talk about that at the end. But it's very, very important that you understand that the very same way that we have different denominations today and what divides denominations today comes down to simply this, a different interpretation of the what? Of the scriptures. That's the reason why we have so many different groups, religious groups, even within evangelical Christianity today, because of what we believe. And it was no different in the days of Paul and the days of Jesus in the early church in the first century. There were these different denominational groups. Now, some of them would have just kind of agreed to disagree about some of the, the, the intricacies or details about doctrine in Judaism some of them would have been looked at as heretical. In other words, y'all have gone way too far off the, uh, the reservation when it comes to what you believe, and we don't even acknowledge you as a true uh, uh, you know, religious group of Judaism. And so th there was some dissension and a little bit of debate within Judaism about which of these religious groups were legitimate or not. But you have to see that what separated them, as I said before, were different interpretations of the Word of God and the declarations made by God. So let's break some of these down together. And honestly, guys, I'm not going to jump, I'm not going to read a whole lot more in the book of Acts uh, this morning. We're going to look at some different passages of Scripture. But I want to do a very good job to get you to the point to understand what we believe and why we believe it and why it matters. Okay, number one, Pharisees represent religious legalism. They were bound to the letter of the law. Pharisees represent religious legalism. They were bound to the letter of the law. The root meaning of the word Pharisee, it, there's a little bit of uncertainty to it, but most people believe it means someone who separates himself from the rest of the people. Okay? And you kind of pick up on that when you begin to study the New Testament and the gospel accounts is that the, the Pharisees separated themselves from people of different belief systems who interpreted the law different from them. They separated themselves from the common people of Israel, and you, you begin to pick up on that as well because they kind of looked down with disdain upon uneducated people because Pharisees very much prided themselves in being academic, intellectual. They were students of the law, and they studied day and night, and they prided themselves on knowing the word of God. And so they kind of separated themselves from common people. They definitely separated themselves from the Gentiles or any Jewish person who had embraced Hellenistic culture. Now, remember, what is Hellenism? Hellenism is the, is the Greek, um, basically, culture being imposed on another culture. And so if you were a Jew living in first century and you kind of accepted some of the Greek customs and culture and had embraced Hellenism, Pharisees says, nah, -uh, we don't have anything to do with you. And they also separated themselves from certain political groups. And so they were people who were separate. Okay, now that didn't mean that they went off and hid in a cave somewhere. We're going to go see, we're going to see about another group that did that in just a minute. But they were definitely separate from the rest of the people. Now, in, in writings of Josephus, I'm going to refer to Josephus a lot this morning because he was a, a Jewish historian who wrote in the first century, and he gives us a lot of insight about what was the dynamic of some of these different groups during the days of the early New Testament church. But Josephus says that during the time of Herod, the Pharisees only numbered to about 6,000 people. So they were a very small group. A religious group, okay? Um, but they still had great amount of influence because they believed that they had kept and preserved the integrity of the word of God. 
And I'm going to tell you something. That's one of the good things about the Pharisees. And I'm going to tell you something that may surprise you. Jesus himself, if he had to align himself with any religious group of his day, guess who would he, he would have aligned himself with the most? The Pharisees. Do you believe that? As much condemnation as he had against this group, he would have theologically, when it came to interpreting the scriptures of God, Jesus would have aligned himself with the Pharisees the most. And I think I'm, you're going to see in just a minute, I think that's why he came down on them so hard. I think that he understood, guys, you've got it right. You interpret the scriptures correctly. You, you are conservative in your belief system and your theology. But guess what? You're a bunch of what? Hypocrites. And Jesus, that's why he condemns them so many times for being hypocritical, not matching up with what they believe and how they live and how they act. And I think that's where you start getting the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Paul himself said he is a what? He was a Pharisee. He was raised by Pharisees. So Paul would have been very zealous for the law and had a very conservative interpretation of the scriptures. And so I don't want you guys to get a misunderstanding about Pharisees because when we use that word, that's like a bad word in the Bible, right? Uh, you're just a Pharisee, okay? And we're going to see why that is here in just a minute. But let me just give you some of the beliefs that the Pharisees held to. They held to a, a dualistic understanding of both divine sovereignty. In other words, God is sovereign and he is at work in the, in the, in the lives of human history and in, in the individual lives. But humans are also responsible. They believed in human responsibility. They believed that, that we have a choice. We have a, a free will, if you will. To make decisions, and so they 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 recognize both of those. They believed in the immortality of the soul. Okay, it means that when you die, your soul continues to live. They believed in the supernatural realm, so they would have accepted things like angels and the demonic realm. And they believed in the resurrection from the dead, and they believed in the future messianic age to come. Okay, very important that you understand what the Pharisees. Believed. And what they prided themselves on, as I said, they were considered the most accurate interpreters of the law. Okay? The most accurate interpreters of the law. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The Pharisees also, however, were even more fiercely guarded when it came to their oral tradition. Now, why is this important? Because I want you to understand what I'm saying here. We know that we have the law and the prophets. These were the scriptures inspired by God to be what? Written down and preserved. So basically God said, write these down in these books. Write the scrolls. They were very, the, the Jewish people were meticulous in preserving the word of God and they had it written down. They had it copied. They made sure it was accurate. They made sure there were no errors in those copies. They were meticulous when it came to writing the word of God down. And God did that on purpose because he knew that if we didn't have the written word, then man would begin to make up his own traditions. Well, guess what the Pharisees did? They said, hey, there have been some oral traditions passed down from previous generations from our elders, and these are not written down. These are just what we've received from past generations. And here's what they began to do, guys. They began to elevate their oral traditions that were not grounded necessarily in the Word of God. They began to elevate them above the what? Above the Word, above the written Word. Now you begin to understand that's why Jesus would come and he would bring a condemnation against the Pharisees like this. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about the written word. They're talking about the oral tradition. This is what they added in addition to the word of God. And they asked Jesus that question. Why do they not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Listen to Jesus' response. He said, well, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. Teaching, he says, in vain they worship me. Teaching is doctrines, the commandments of men. You pick up on that? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
This is where the Pharisees became so self-righteous because they felt like they had extra knowledge of the interpretation of the scriptures of, that the Lord had given to the Israelites to be written down and preserved. And they carried these oral traditions and they elevated them higher than the word of God. And then this is what was even worse. Then they began to impose their traditions and their man-made beliefs on the rest of the people. And they're telling the people, if you don't obey the laws and the traditions of our elders, of our oral tradition, then you are not living in favor and under the blessing of God. And that's where Jesus said, listen, you've got it all wrong. You're teaching your traditions of men as if it were equal to the written word and the scriptures. How many times do we see that happening in our, in our world today? It happens all the time in our churches. I mean, you have so many churches today and even individuals Christian individuals and churches who are so legalistic and they're so condemning to other people that what do they end up doing? They end up pushing people what? Away from the Lord because those people can never live up to these man-made traditions and expectations that they place upon them because it's not about a relationship. It's just about keeping a set of what? A set of rules. And if you mess up and you can't keep this set of rules perfectly, then, then you're condemned and, and you're not part of this fellowship and, and we're going you know, to come down on you and we're going to shame you in front of the people and all this kind of stuff. And that's what Jesus was getting to when he came down in condemnation of the Pharisees. He's saying, you're elevating man's rules above my law and you're holding the people responsible for something that I never told them to do. And it's so very dangerous. But when it comes to the Pharisees, you have to understand that they also did some good things. Let me share a couple of them with you. In Luke 13, 31, the Pharisees warned Jesus that his life is in danger, that Herod wants to kill him. They warned him. In, uh, in Luke 7 and 14, they invited Jesus to share a meal with them. And several times throughout his ministry, the Pharisees say, hey, will you come eat a meal with us? We want to learn more about what you have to teach. We know two of the most famous Pharisees in the scripture are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They became believers and followers of Jesus. Who, they were the two men who took his what? His body off the cross and prepared it for burial. Two Pharisees. So the Pharisees, and like I said about Paul, he was also a Pharisee. So the Pharisees were not all Bad, but if you have just a second, let's, let's do this real quick because I think it's worth it. Look at Matthew 23. I'm not going to read all this, but I just want y'all to see. This is probably one of the harshest condemnations of any people group that Jesus gives in the scriptures. And I just want you to look at a couple of things he says about the Pharisees. Verse 13. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter it yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Man, that's harsh. He goes on to say in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs. You outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. And so he tells them that that's their outward appearance of righteousness, but in inside they were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And of course, his condemnation goes on and on and on. Let me share another scripture that should get your attention from John chapter 5. Again, the Pharisees are challenging Jesus, and listen to what he said. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Remember, what did they pride themselves on? They knew the word of God. They memorized the word of God. They were the, the most conservative interpreters of the word of God. Jesus is bringing a condemnation. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, just because you have a knowledge of the scriptures, you think that's what's going to give you eternal life. He says, but it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. That's what Jesus said. He says, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That's the big issue when it came to the Pharisees. They honor me with their lips, but they're what? Their hearts are far away. He says, I've come in my Father's name and you did not receive me. Listen to what he says. Do not think that I accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses. Who did they pride themselves on understanding? The writings of 
Moses. They would have, they would have debated anybody about having the best interpretation of Moses' writings. And Jesus said, Moses is the one who accuses you because if you believed Moses, then you would have believed me because he wrote about me. You see what Jesus is doing? He's saying you don't know what you're looking for because you're all about intellectual knowledge and pride, but you don't have the love of God in your heart because if you did, you would receive me because Moses was the one that kept pointing people to me. So that's what was happening there with the Pharisees. Legalistic, keeping religious rules, interpreting man-made rules above the law of God, um, all kind of perversions of the scripture because they introduced all these different oral traditions. And I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave you with one great quote. I don't know where it originated from, but my wife shared it with me many years ago, and it says this, and this is, I think, sums up the Pharisees in one sentence. You ready? Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Rules without a what? That a relationship will always lead to rebellion. It'll lead to rebellion in a church, and it'll lead to rebellion in your children. If you want to impose rules on your children, but you don't have a relationship with your children, what are your children going to do? They're going to rebel. I guarantee it. And that's the same thing that Jesus was trying to tell the Pharisees. You got all these rules right, but you have no what? You have no relationship with me. And that's why you're in living in rebellion and you're leading other people to live in rebellion. Number two, let's look at the Sadducees. The Sadducees, now look, if the Pharisees represent legalism, the Sadducees represent liberalism. These are kind of the two extreme ends of the spectrum, right? They became a law unto themselves, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were willing to compromise the word of God in order to justify their own agendas or to justify their own uh, sinful lifestyles. Uh, the Sadducees, according to Josephus, were usually part of the elite group in Israel. They were very wealthy. They, have, they had a, um, a high priestly. The, the priesthood was in the line of the Sadducees by the time of Jesus' day. So they were very much a minority in Israel, but they were very powerful because they were very wealthy and they were very well connected. Now remember, the Pharisees separated themselves from anything to do with Rome or the Hellenistic culture or anybody that disagreed with them. The Sadducees, they weren't like that. They were very pragmatic. They were willing to get involved in all the different social dynamics of their day. They were willing to, to make deals with the Romans. They were willing to make deals with Herod and, and his, uh, um, his rule and reign as the king there during the time of, of uh, Jesus in the early church. So they were willing to do all of these different things in order to remain in positions of political power, and they loved social recognition. And so they used their religious beliefs not as something that was out of conviction. They didn't really care what they, what they believed in their heart, they just used it as a tool or a way for them to elevate themselves before the people. That's who the Sadducees really were. Very well connected. Now remember, as Paul says, excuse me, as Luke says here in Acts 23, he says, what, how did he identify the Sadducees? He said, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection. And that they didn't believe in the spirit realm and most importantly, they believed that when you died, the lights went out and there was no immortality of the soul. They did not believe in any afterlife. Okay? And so as a result of that, now I want you to logically follow through. If you don't believe in a future resurrection and you don't believe in the immortality of the soul and you don't believe in a spiritual, immaterial component to human nature, then here's another thing logically you don't believe in. You don't believe in the future judgment. In other words, it, all that matters is what happens right here, right now, on this earth. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Get what you can now, because when it's over, it's over, and there's no reckoning, there's no final judgment, there's no resurrection from the dead, there's not even an afterlife. You see, Sadducees, they would say that they believe the teachings of the Bible, the, the teachings of Moses, the Old Testament, but in practice, guys, they rejected it and denied it completely. Listen to what Jesus said to the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12. 
The Sadducees were challenging Jesus about the resurrection from the dead. You know, if a woman dies and she remarries and dies and, and remarries, her husband dies and she remarries, you know, who's she going to be married to in the, in the kingdom of God? And, and Jesus says this. He said, look, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He said, when, when they rise from the dead, they, don't, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, excuse me, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God, he is not God of the dead, but he is God of the living. Think about what Jesus is saying to the Sadducees. Remember, they don't believe in the immortality of the soul. They don't believe in an afterlife. They believe that when you die, the lights go off and, and, and it's over. But the Lord, speaking to Moses, many, many years after he had already revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, guess what? When he revealed himself to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already what? They were already dead. But when he talks and reveals himself to Moses, how does he introduce himself to Moses? He said, Moses, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does that mean? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. Their spirit lives on even though their bodies are in the grave. They too are awaiting the future resurrection of the dead. See, he's challenging the belief system of the Sadducees right here. In Acts chapter 4, as, as Jane, uh, excuse me, John and Peter are preaching right after the day of Pentecost, they're arrested. It says, the Sadducees came upon them and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You see, the resurrection from the dead was just that one belief that really just kind of turned a thorn in their side because if they had to admit that there was a resurrection of the dead, their whole belief system would fall apart. They did not want to believe in a resurrection of the dead. Now, how does that apply to you and me today? Well, I, I kind of correlate the Sadducees today to what we've seen in our culture, in our day, especially here in North America, where liberalism has crept into the church and you have entire denominations today that completely compromise the word of God. They completely ignore and reject the word of God, even trying to pervert it or change it altogether in order to say something that it doesn't say or they'll just outright ignore it altogether and say, you know what, I, you know, the Bible may say this or that. maybe that's what it meant to them back then, but it certainly couldn't mean the same thing today because, you know, we're living in a more progressive culture today. You know, everybody's kind of, we're more progressive today and we're trying to be all inclusive and, you know, the Bible may say this, that it, this is a sin, but, you know, we, we don't really believe that today. And we've got entire denominations today that are basically compromising the gospel, compromising the word of God. They're watering down the scriptures. They're teaching false teachings and heresies all over this continent, all over this world. And they're doing it in the spirit of political correctness. They're doing it in the spirit of moral relativism and basically saying we get to define what is true. We get to say what's true, not God. And that's what the liberal churches today are doing. Rejecting essential doctrines of the faith and they're embracing things like universalism. Universalism is a belief that, you know, there is no hell. A lot of churches today have embraced this false teaching, saying, you know what, God could not possibly send anyone to hell. He's a God of love. There's no such thing as hell. You've got churches today that are teaching radical environmentalism, where, you know, we elevate, you know, save the planet, save the planet, Mother Earth, and, and we, we, we begin to worship the creation instead of who? Instead of the creator who's to be praised forever, we see that creeping in to the church. We have churches, I saw this the other day on Facebook, and I know you got to read and you got to research and you got you to look at these articles and don't believe everything you, you, you hear on Facebook. Amen, I understand that. But I do, I try to go and read. And there are, there's been several occasions just in the past few years where pastors and ministers, if you want to call them that, go into abortion clinics and pray a, a prayer of blessing over abortion clinics. In the name of Jesus, that's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with in our culture today. Denominations who, I saw this the other day, there's a seminary I think up in New York State where they, they told their students they need to repent to plants. 
I'm serious, y'all. It's, it's, it's hilarious, but it's the truth. Look it up. It just happened just a couple of weeks ago. They had their students sit down in front of a bunch of plants and said, we're sorry, plants, because we're destroying the earth. We're, de we're destroying nature. Repent to the plants. That's in a Christian seminary today. And then you go on and on about, you know, uh, sexuality and, and the you know, establishment of marriage and all these kind of things that are just being completely compromised, guys, in our culture today. But that's exactly what's happening when it comes to the spirit of the Sadducees in our culture today. Some people use their religious beliefs not because out of conviction. They're just using it to elevate and promote their own agendas. And it is an agenda straight from hell. That's what it is. Number three. I'm going to give you a couple more before we look at our, our, our group. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to give you a couple. Essenes represent religious elitism, cutting themselves off from society. Another interesting thing, when we went to Israel, we were able to go to the caves of Qumran, and there they have rediscovered this entire city, basically, that existed back in the first century and even prior to the first century. And listen, these were a group of, they were probably Pharisees who took it to a whole nother level. They said, hey, we're so strict and religious and we want to maintain the integrity of the Word of God so much that we've got to completely separate ourselves from everybody else. We've got to cut ourselves off from society so that we can practice the true religion, and we're the true followers of Yeshua, or excuse me, the true followers of Yahweh, the Lord. And so they built this community, this commune, out in the middle of the desert, and that is where they remain and cut themselves off from the rest of society. So this was a fraternal organization. That means only men were allowed. They were monastic, meaning they were like monks. And if you look at some of the the teachings of the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages, and you start seeing some of the monasteries that were set up, these were men who would separate themselves from the rest of society so that they could practice righteousness without being polluted by the rest of the world. They were very fatalistic and deterministic in their belief system. They believed that they were the one true remnant of Israel, and they believed that God was going to use them to punish everybody else. They were going to be with him when he returned, when Messiah came so that they could, they could punish the rest of the world in divine judgment. Okay, so this was kind of their belief system. But here's one interesting thing that did come out of the Qumran. They were very much, again, students of the law, and they copied and meticulously preserved many of the scriptures where in 1947, a little shepherd boy was out there chasing one of his goats and tossed a rock into one of those caves in Qumran and heard a crack, a pot cracked in the cave, and he ended up discovering one of the greatest archaeological discoveries known in our generation called the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you don't know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you need to go look it up because here's the most important thing you need to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And remember, the Essenes were the ones who preserved these scrolls. And because of the dry climate of uh, the, that area near the Dead Sea, they were, they were preserved for thousands of years, about 2,000 years, okay? Now, before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest Hebrew manuscript of the Old Testament that we had in our possession dated to around 1400 A.D., the Masoretic text. It was, the, it was the earliest Hebrew text of Scripture. When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it had a complete copy or partial copies of every single book in the Old Testament except Esther. And here's what the scholars and archaeologists began to find. When they compared what we found, remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls, these scrolls were written even about 100 to 200 years before the life of Jesus himself. So you're beginning to say, could, can we trust what we have in our hands today as really the Word of God? Is this a reliable document, a reliable copy of the Old Testament? And what we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was that when we compared the Masoretic text with the copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what we found? They were almost 100% completely compatible with maybe a few little minor variations, but, I mean, 99.9% exact match. What does that mean? Why is that important? Because that means that what we had in 1400 A.D. was reliable because it matched what we had to 200 B.C., even before the time of who? Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament now is even more reliable, the one that we hold in our hands, because now we know that the Scriptures had been preserved. 
pretty neat, right? Now, I don't want to go too far, but, but when you get into the Essenes, look, this is like one of those radical religious groups who you got people who are easily led astray and they fall in love with some strong personality type. And they said, hey, come follow me. And they go out living in the wilderness somewhere and they cut themselves off from everybody. And it's like, it's like a cult. Now, that's part of what we would see in our, in our day and age today. I'm not saying that Essenes were a cult, but in a way, they kind of were. Probably not to the extent of what we see today with things like David Koresh and, you know, Jim Jones and, and all that kind of stuff. And the terrible stuff that's happened in, in this whole cultic uh, separate ourselves from the rest of society. But we don't want to be that way, right? We don't want to be that way. All right, number four, zealots. Zealots represent religious extremism, willing to break the law to advance their own agendas. Okay? Now, who are the zealots? The zealots were a group of people who lived on violent extremism and insurrection. They were always trying to overthrow the Roman government. They were always trying to stir up trouble with the Romans. Because they believed that possibly if they could get enough support and create enough of a rebellion or revolution, they believed that maybe the Messiah would come, the political military figure they were looking for, and he would come and deliver them from the Romans and set up the kingdom of Israel. So the zealots were a very troublesome group. As Josephus said, they, were, they sowed the seed of every kind of misery, wars, murders, um, important people they would murder, assassinations, robberies. I mean, uh, y'all know the story of Barabbas? You know, there's one prisoner released every year, and they said, who do you want to release, Jesus or Bar Barabbas? was one of the zealots. He was one of the, the murderers of the insurrection during that day. Matter of fact, it came to the point by AD 70 that the, the zealots had caused so much trouble to the Romans that eventually the Romans came in and did what? Just wiped, just wiped out the city of Jerusalem, burned down the temple, and from that point on, the religious system of, of the Jews was completely destroyed. Okay, so obviously we don't want to be like the zealots because Jesus would say, you know, if you want to live by the sword, what happens? You're going to die by the sword. Like, that's not my way. Jesus says, that, that's not what I'm trying to get here. I, I want you to, to conquer the world a different way. Right, And that's why Jesus didn't come to conquer as a ruling military conqueror the first time he came because he wanted to come and advance the kingdom a different way. Okay, now let's get down to the very last one, Nazarenes. The reason I use the word Nazarenes is because these are the people, including you and me today, that represent the way of true relationship with God, guided by the spirit of life, guided by the law of the spirit of life. And the reason I use the word Nazarenes is because in Acts chapter 24, it says this, that one of the accusers of Paul, he uses that word in Acts 24. Listen to what he says. He says, we found that this man is a plague, talking of Paul, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect, sect of the Nazarenes. So the, the accusers and the opponents of the Christian church they called them the Nazarenes. Why? We worship Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Jesus who was raised in Nazareth. That's why they called them that. And they also called them the way. The reason they called them the way is because Christians were going around telling people that their Messiah has come. He's died. He's been raised from the dead. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can go to heaven except through him. And so the Nazarenes represent what we try to strive to be today, which are the true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, so what distinguishes true followers from these other different religious groups? I'm going to break it down for you right here. You ready? All right, the Pharisees, they were hypocrites because they preached the letter of the law, but their hearts were far from God. The Sadducees were willing to compromise God's word for self-promotion and to keep power. The Essenes were wrong because they stayed in their own holy huddle. They didn't get outside to engage the culture. The Zealots were willing to justify breaking the law and rebelling against authority to advance their cause. They lived by the sword. They died by the sword. But listen to what it's... Here's what we need to understand about the Nazarenes, the true church. We, on the other hand, are different. We have inherited a new covenant through Jesus the Messiah. 
We're not enslaved to man's rules or burdened by the legalistic letter of the law, okay? But we are now living in the spirit of the law, which takes the teaching of Torah, and it actually elevates it to become a matter of the what? Of the heart. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. The law is good. He came to what? Fulfill the law. But here's what Jesus did. He said, everything that you think that you're following, all these 613 commandments that are written in the law of Moses, he said, listen, these are good and the law is good, but I'm going to take it to a whole nother level. If you're going to be a follower of me, the, the law says don't murder. You know what I say? If you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, you're just like a murderer. You see, he, he took the law to a whole nother level and it made it even more amazing, more uh, difficult in, in a sense for us to keep the law, but I'm going to get to how we are able to keep the law, whereas the Pharisees and other religious groups were not, okay? We don't compromise the word of God like the Sadducees, so we're not going to try to use God's word as a license because some people can turn around and preach grace, 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 right? Hey, I'm covered by God's grace, so I can, you know, I can kind of go out and live a worldly lifestyle and, and live in sin and all that stuff. And, and, and when, whenever things kind of get rough, all I got to do is pull out my what? My grace card. God's got me covered, right? Is that, is that what we're supposed to do as Christians? Absolutely not. That's not what we do. We certainly don't isolate ourselves like the Essenes, okay? The Essenes were this holy huddle. They lived in a commune. They did not engage the culture. How can we live out the Great Commission if we're all grouped together, never engaging the people outside? You see, we can't be like the Essenes, and we certainly can't live like the Zealots where we're going to try to bring the kingdom of God through some type of violent force. That's what Muslims do according to Sharia law. They come into different territories and they conquer through violent force and subjugation and say you either become a Muslim or you become our slave or you're going to what? Or you're going to die. That's what the Quran teaches. I'm not, I'm not down in Muslims today. I'm saying that's, what, that's, the, that's the philosophy of Islam, jihad. Okay, that's, what, that's not what we do. We come, we advance the kingdom of God through preaching the love preaching the grace of God, preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing people's lives be changed. And here's the one thing, and I know we're going to have to wrap this thing up. Here's the one thing that sets us apart from all these other religious groups. What sets you and me apart is that Jesus Christ in his coming, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and subsequent giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, something changed on that day. Because on that day, we became recipients of the new covenant. And what God promised Old Testament Israel, he said, there will be a day where I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, listen, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's what I'm trying to get to. The one thing that separates you and me today as believers compared to all of these other groups that we have just studied is this. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And because we have the indwelling presence, we've been born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we now are in an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through His Spirit, and He gives us the ability and the capacity and the, and the want to, the desire to obey Him because He said, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments, you will obey me. And that's the basis and the status of our relationship with God. It is a love relationship and we serve the Lord Jesus Christ not because we have to but because we want to Amen. that's what separates us from all other religious groups now as our praise team comes up what we believe matters because what we believe ultimately determines how we live Amen. what we believe matters because what we believe will ultimately determine how we live. Let me tell you something about Christ Church, guys. I'm thankful that we're a non-denominational church. I've been on every spectrum. I've grew up in the Methodist church, and I went and I went to the Baptist seminary, and I went through church planning through the Baptist network and have many brothers and sisters in all types of denominations, and I'm not anti-Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or whatever, 
But here's the one thing. It's not that we don't know who we are. We know exactly who we are because we try to eliminate these traditions of men that I think many times hold people back from being the true followers of Jesus Christ in many ways. I'm not saying other denominations aren't true followers. Please hear me. But what I'm saying is, is that we have one authority and one authority alone, and it goes back to this right here, Amen. the Word of God. And if it's not in the Word, and if you can't find it or prove it in the Word, then we don't believe it. And it always goes back to the Word of God and a relationship with Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. And that's why I'm so thankful to be a part of this church, and I hope that you understand how special and rare it is in today's culture to be a part of a church like Christ Church where there is a spirit of freedom. There is a spirit of liberty because we as your elders have to trust that if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have one person who is leading and, and, and guiding your life and he is the Holy Spirit of God and I'm not the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? I'm not here to be the Holy Spirit police in your life. This is, this is your relationship with God and that's what we're going to continue to preach and teach and disciple you to learn how to walk in that relationship with God through Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. Now, before we sing, I'm going to challenge all of you to do one thing for me. I don't know how many of you have visited our website in the last week, month, or year, okay? But this week, I want you to just do something. You guys, a little bit of free time, a little bit of idle time, okay? Go to ChristChurchMemphis.com. Very simple search. Underneath the very top of the tabs, it says about. Click on the about tab, and underneath that, it'll say beliefs. You need to make sure that you understand what we believe. And you need to know why we believe it. Amen. And you can get in and read every one of those scriptures if you want to, or you can just look at the, at the overall topics of what we believe. But I want to encourage you and challenge you guys. It's important that you know what we believe here at Christ Church, and you need to make sure that you agree with what we believe with Christ Church, okay? That's your homework assignment for this week as we get ready to go. So find out what we, what we believe, know why you believe what you believe, and let's continue to be able to walk in a relationship with Jesus Christ in the spirit of grace and the spirit of freedom so that we can be his representatives in this world as we continue to go and fulfill the Great Commission. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much that we have a spirit of life, the spirit of liberty, and I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves. And as we're about to sing, Lord, your love is so deep. Your love is so true. Your love is unending and everlasting and perfect in every way. And we can sing that with all assurance today because we are your children through your son and in, in, in the radical transformation of the Holy Spirit who has given us the right to be adopted into your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.